0: Well, good morning. morning. This week I I found something interesting that I had not uh, known before, but when I was younger, I used to be fascinated by like ancient Egypt and and stuff like that. Um, you know, the treasures, the statues that have been uncovered over the years, from things like King Tut's funeral mask to the pyramids, the Sphinx, all that stuff. I, I just thought it was cool when I was a kid. Um, you know, I've seen pictures of a lot of Egyptian statues. There's one thing that I never really thought about before, and it's that a lot of these statues are missing noses. Like a lot of them have their noses broken. And that, like, even the Sphinx has its nose broken. And so you look at that, and you're just like, well, that's weird. Why would that be? Like, why are all of these statues with a broken nose? Now, apparently that's one of the questions that is uh, very common from visitors to the Brooklyn Museum's uh, Egyptian art galleries. So the director of the uh, museum's Egyptian art gallery uh, had always thought that it was just simply because you know the noses stick out and so they get damaged over time but he did some study about it and what he found was that it looks to be a little bit more deliberate than that he said the consistency of the patterns the damage found in the sculpture suggests that it's a purposeful thing for to have happened, and, and there are plenty of other, uh, like, flat reliefs where they were also missing noses. And so here's what he found, as this was written in the story that I read. It said, the ancient Egyptians believed that the essence of a deity could inhabit an image of that deity. So these campaigns of vandalism were therefore intended to deactivate an image's strength the damaged part of the body is no longer able to do its job. So without a nose, the statue spirit ceases to breathe, and so that vandal is effectively killing it. Now, pharaohs would regularly issue decrees with uh, terrible punishments for anybody who would dare threaten their likeness in such a way. And what this shows to us, I think, is that you know these so-called gods uh, from ancient Egypt were kind of fragile you know if if you could break a nose on a statue and that renders that god ineffective or whatever that or even killing the the deity that's inhabiting it you know these gods really have no power really have no supremacy over anything what we're going to look at today though is we're going to see how there is one true god of course and he does reign supreme over all things Last week we started this new series where we've been going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As, as a quick reminder, just a little bit of background for Ephesus. Ephesus was a major port city off the Aegean Sea, which has the thriving culture and was one of the centers of worship for the goddess Artemis. Her temple, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, was in the city. And the Apostle Paul had come to Ephesus and helped start churches there and... And now he's in prison in Rome, and he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. So in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is going to continue to encourage the Ephesians as he moves to what is kind of typical in his letters. You get a little short message of thanksgiving and then a prayer for them. And we're still in the first chapter of Ephesians, uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go there and follow along with us as we go through it. And so let's look at uh, first at where Paul gives thanks. Ephesians 1, verse 15 says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul starts this passage with, for this reason. And of course, when you see that, you've got to go backwards. You've got to remind ourselves of what he wrote previously. And so we're looking back to the passage before, verses 3 through 14, which we looked at last week. But we saw that Paul was giving praise to God because God chose us from before the creation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus, redeeming us, purchasing us through the high cost of Christ's blood on the cross, forgiving our sins in accordance with his riches, the riches of his grace, so that we will be for the praise of his glory. And as his followers, Christians are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, eternal life in Christ. The praise of God in this section motivates kind of the rest of the letter. And, and we should keep that in mind as we continue through each successive passage. So Paul says, for this reason, it's ever since I heard about. And then there's two things that he's heard about, the Ephesians, which he is commending them. The first is their faith in the Lord Jesus Paul uses the same phrase or something pretty similar in other letters that he's written. Colossians one four and Philemon 5 are two examples of this. But Paul had apparently received reports from somebody who let him know of the Ephesians' faith in Christ. Their faith was so apparent, it stood out enough that it was something that even Paul was able to hear in a Roman prison. And there's a vertical aspect to that. You know, it's all about their faith in, in Christ and, and God. And your faith in Jesus, it is the most important. It also reminds me of the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked which of the commandments was most important, here's how Mark describes his reply in his gospel. Mark twelve twenty-nine says, Well, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. There's not just the vertical element to it. There's also a horizontal element, to which Paul talks about as well, because he writes to them that he's heard of their love for God's people. One commentator writes that faith in Christ leads unavoidably to love for others whom God has set apart for himself in Christ. It's also part of the greatest commandment, Mark twelve thirty one. Jesus continues, he says, The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself, There's no commandment greater than these. By showing their love for one another, the Ephesian believers are demonstrating something, or they're, well, they're demonstrating the love for Christ for the world, the love of Christ for the world. The way it's described by one commentator is that it's a love that seeks the highest good in the one who is loved, and this kind of love is directed toward all the saints, not just those who are deemed lovable. This is part of the new command which Jesus gave his disciples the night that he would be arrested. John 13, 34 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Christians, we are supposed to love in such a way that it stands out from the world. We take care of each other. We we do life together. We're there for each other during the ups and the downs. We build each other up. Sometimes we're just holding each other up. And we do it so that others might see that there's something different about us. We don't do it for our glory. We don't do it because we want to do it, or we don't do it because we're trying to get something for ourselves, but we are doing it for God's glory. That others might see something attractive about our lifestyle, about our faith, and they might come to know and follow Jesus as well. Now, Paul says he hasn't stopped giving thanks for them, remembering them in his prayers. So Paul, apparently, is always praying about the Ephesians, saying, never stop. A little bit of hyperbole, probably, but it's just saying that he, you know, continually, he's given thanks for them. Shows us how he feels about these people. He cares for them deeply, and and he's given thanks for them in their faith in Jesus. In the next passage, we're going to see four prayers that Paul prays here in Ephesus So the first prayer for the Ephesians is that the Lord would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation for a specific purpose, which was to know him better. There is no greater knowledge than to know God. You may have heard this saying in philosophy, which says, like, know thyself. You know, it comes from an ancient Greek inscription that was found in the temple of Apollo in Delphi. And while it's not a terrible thing to know yourself, it is a far greater value for us to know God. But how do we get to know him? Well, Paul asked that the Holy Spirit's insight on the Lord would be given to followers of Jesus. We see in 1 Corinthians 2 that the Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to the believer. According to commentator Harold Honer, in the present context, the believer is to come to know him intimately And as a result, the believer will become acquainted with God's actions as described in the following verses. Hence, it's not facts about God that are most important, but knowing him personally and intimately. Knowing facts about somebody is not really knowing them. So while we read scripture, we can get facts about who God is, and that is important. What we really need is the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation to truly know God better. And so that's the first prayer that Paul prays, to know God. Second prayer is that they would know the hope to which God has called them. Hope is an expectation or a belief in the fulfillment of something desired. It's not simply like when we were kids and like we were hoping that we would get you know, the right toy for Christmas or whatever, or, or you know, that we were hoping we would get a good grade on a test. I know that's how most of my tests were. Like, I'm hoping I get a good grade. I don't really know. (laughs) Biblically, though, hope carries an expectation that something desired will happen. And our hope for the future is only found in Christ, both in the salvation he brings and in his return for the future. If you remember from last week in verse 4, God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. Like Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So many things that we can hope for in the future. We've got to hope for salvation We've got to hope for righteousness. We've got a hope to be resurrected in an incorruptible body. Everybody, I'm excited for that one. You know, Nothing's going to hurt. <laughs> we also hope for God's glory. As one commentator writes, the hope to which God has called them is linked with the summing up of all things in Christ, which is the final purpose of God's saving activity in his son. Hope is what these Gentile readers did not have before they believed. So we pray to know God better. We pray to know the hope that we have. In the third prayer, Paul prays for the people of Ephesus that they would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, literally, this reads the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the holy ones. So it's not our inheritance that Paul's talking about. It's not the Christian's inheritance. It is God's inheritance. It's not for the believers. It's found in the believer's. That means that we've got some value to God. And we know this is true because like we talked about, you know, he's chosen us and we have redemption through the blood of Christ. That's how valuable we are to God, that he created us, that we sin, we separate ourselves from him. And still he sent his son in order to take our punishment for our sin to the cross shedding his blood and dying for us there. So like it says in Corinthians, we've been bought with a price, or at a price, and we are God's inheritance. As Honor writes, believers are valuable to God because he purchased them in order to inherit them. This inheritance will be fully realized in the future. Now, the fourth and final prayer that Paul mentions is that he prays that the Ephesians would know God's power, which is available to them. Paul uses two words to describe God's power here in verse 19, incomparably great. Let's start with the great. If you remember when we looked at Psalm 145 a couple weeks ago, we talked about God's greatness. So I'll just recap it a little bit here. The word is translated in the Old Testament as great or large, high, vast, even more than that. And during creation, you know, as an example, the sun and the moon were created as they were described as two great lights that God made. We cannot fully comprehend God's greatness because he is infinite outside of space and time, while we are not. We are limited. And so we we can't fully fathom it. But he is great. Now, let's move on to the word incomparably, or some might pronounce it incomparably. But incomparable means that, like, Basically what it sounds like. You know, you can't compare whatever you're talking about to anything else. It's so far beyond that it doesn't compare. Dictionary defines it as without an equal in quality or extent, matchless. And that's how Paul talks about God's power. That it is incomparably great. It has no equal. And remember, Paul is writing this to a church in a city where they are worshiping the goddess Artemis And have an enormous temple dedicated to her. But her power, not even going to come close to God's. And the most amazing thing that Paul writes is that this incomparably great power is available to us who believe. Over the next few verses, as we close out this passage, Paul gives an example of God's incomparably great power. And in it, we're also going to see Christ's supremacy over all things. Ephesians 1, 19, second part of 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Again, there's four things that we see that demonstrate God's incomparably, I can't say it now, incomparably great power with regard to Christ. The first is that he raised Jesus from the dead. And the word for dead here in the Greek, it's plural. So it gives us a little bit different sense than what we might think. It's not just that God raised Christ from being dead to being alive again, which he did. But it's that God raised Christ out from the dead ones. As one writer puts it, this is an important difference, for it suggests that his resurrection was not viewed as an isolated event, but as the first stage in the future resurrection. J. Fitzmyer says that God's resurrection power emanates from the Father, raises Jesus from the dead at the resurrection, endows him with a new vitality, and finally proceeds from him as the life-giving, vitalizing force of the new creation and of the new life that Christians in union with Christ experience and live. And this is an expression of active power as well. Like This is not it's like a one-time deal kind of thing, because... Everybody that was raised from the dead before, of which there were a few, all went back to the grave. Think like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, went back to the grave. Which I think is a pretty bum deal. <laughs> but it also could have been pretty cool. Been Like, hey, came back from the dead. Um, Christ did not do that, though. He did not go back to the grave. In fact, God did something with Christ, which he also demonstrated his incomparably great power. He seated Jesus at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Culturally speaking, to sit at somebody's right hand is to sit in the place of honor. When people would speak about someone's right hand, it was to speak of their power. And so Christ being seated at God's right hand is in the place of honor, and he has full authority. Being here, he is above all rule and authority. He is above all power and dominion, meaning that there is no one who has higher authority, power, or dominion than Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is above all names. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then in Revelation, when Christ returns, this is part of how it describes him, Revelation nineteen sixteen: On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the second thing. Third thing, in Ephesians one twenty two, Paul writes that God has placed all things under Jesus' feet. This evokes something that David wrote in Psalm 110, verse 1, where he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ has been given all rule and authority in heaven and on earth. When we say that, that, that should bring to mind something that Jesus said himself at the end of Matthew's gospel as he's given his apostles what he, what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Part of the authority that God has given to Christ is to be over the church. And that's the fourth way that God showed his power, that Jesus is appointed to be the head of, over everything for the church. And the church, in turn, is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the authority over the church. He is Lord over all things. And we, the church, are his body. The head's got a pretty close relationship with the body. There's unity, not just between the body and the head, but with each other as well. So the head is going to direct our movements. And the church needs to be connected to the head because, I mean, you can lose body parts and survive, but if you lose a head, that's going to be tough to keep going. When we ignore the instructions from the head, that also makes things pretty tough. Maybe it's not quite as devastating, but it's still not, not great. But Paul finished by saying that the body is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. Again, Honer writes that the fullness of God's power and attributes are given to the church by Christ, who in turn is being filled with them completely. And with that, that ends Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. So what do we learn from this? How can we apply it to our own lives? Well, one of the most obvious things we can do is we can try to emulate the Ephesian church with how Paul described them. Paul said they had that twofold distinction that he'd heard about. He heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus. And that right there should be the foundation for everything that we do. Our faith really should be the most important thing about us. As Jesus said, we don't don't want to hide it under a bishop. We want to be a light shining for others. So if we love God with everything we are, like the great commandment, then people should be aware of that. So let your faith be evident and distinctive. And the second thing Paul had heard about the love that they showed for all of God's people. And this in particular is talking about Christians loving each other. And it stems from the command that we read earlier in John 13 that Jesus gave his disciples to love one another. Because that is how people are going to know that you're his disciples. The love that we show for each other should be so distinctive. It should be so different from the world that people are drawn to it. They look at us and and see how we take care of each other, love each other, and, and they'll know. You know, there's something different. They these people follow Jesus, and that means that we we take care of each other. We're we're there for one another. We're, we're building each other up, and and we're praying for each other. And how can we pray for each other? We do the same. Pray the same way that Paul did. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ to continue to know God better. It's one of the things that I'm always trying to do, our staff's always trying to do, is to help you get to know God better. And so we do that through teaching scripture, worshiping, demonstrating God's love, even though, you know, it's it's imperfect as we, as we are imperfect. But it's having deep conversations when we ask questions of each other and to each other and. It's doing small groups, things like that. It's all hopefully, it's aimed to help us get to know God even better. And building on that, we pray that, that we would continue to know our hope. Our hope for a new life in Christ. Our hope for salvation and righteousness, resurrection, that new body, eternal life, God's glory. And also to know the riches we have in Christ as his inheritance That God chose us from before creation to purchase us on the cross. That he values us so much. And we pray that we would continue to know his power. That power that we have access to through the Holy Spirit living in us. The power which raised Christ out from among the dead. And placed him at the right hand of God to rule and reign forever. Our prayer is also that we continue to follow Jesus. That we continue to be filled by him every day. Putting our faith and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. Following him, daily taking up our cross. Dying to ourselves, but following him. Because that's what it's all about. We have access to God and the Holy Spirit through our faith in Christ. We used to be apart from God. We were dead in our sins, our transgressions. But we have a new life. And that's actually what we're going to talk about next week as we move to the next part of the letter. How we move from death to life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are are so wonderful that you have given us this this letter that was written to this church 2,000 years ago, and yet it has has been preserved for us today as well. That we can study it, that we can learn from it, from what one of the early apostles was teaching. And Lord, we saw the love that he had for those people, that he heard of their, their faith, in Jesus and their love for one another. And they were so distinctive out of that. And I pray that we would be the same, that we would be distinctive in our faith and our love. And Father, we pray to continue to get to know you better, each and every one of us. We pray to know the riches of your glorious inheritance. We pray to know your power. Lord, and we are so thankful that we are able through Jesus to approach the throne of grace to be able to ask these things. Lord, we were dead in our sins. There was no hope before Jesus, before we got to know him and before we followed him. But Father, you have provided the way so that we can be back with you. Lord, we come to the time in our service where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. We take the bread that represents the body that was broken for us. We take the the juice that represents the blood that was spilled for us as Christ was nailed to the cross. And we just take our time to remember the wonderful sacrifice. We thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.